0: Section 8 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Elbert Hubbard Chapter 8, Part 2. Mayor A. Rothschild during the American Revolutionary War, William the Ninth loaned twelve thousand soldiers, a goodly portion of his army, to one George the Third of England to go and fight the American colonies. This is the first and only time that Germans have ever carried arms against Americans. These Hessians were splendid, sturdy soldiers and would have been almost invincible if fighting to protect their homes, but in America they were only half hearted. The bones of many of these poor fellows were scattered through New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and most of those who survived until Cornwallis offered his sword to Washington, and had it refused, settled down and became good Pennsylvania Dutch. Around Reading and Lancaster are various worthy Daughters of the Revolution, whose credential is that their grandsires fought with Washington. The fact that the grandsires aforesaid were from Hesse, sold at so much a head by a governor in need of ready cash need not weigh in the scale a woman's a woman for ere that the amount of money which the landgrave of hesse castle received from the english government for the use of his twelve thousand men was six hundred thousand thalers and while a thaler is equivalent to only about seventy-five cents it was then worth as much as an american dollar is worth now These 600,000 thalers were a straight bonus, for the English government agreed to pay the Hessian soldiers the same as they paid their own English soldiers, and to treat them in all other ways as their own. A second division of 4,000 men was afterwards supplied, for which the Landgrave of Hesse was paid 200,000 thalers. Alluring tales of loot were held out to the soldiers also educational advantages, somewhat after the style of the recruiting posters in this year of grace, 1913, that seek to lead and lure the lusty youth of America to enlist in the cause of Mars. Of course, the common people knew nothing of the details of this deal of Hesse with England. The Americans were represented to them as savages who had arisen against their masters and were massacring men, women, and children. To stop this bloodshed was looked upon as a duty for the sake of humanity. Let it be stated that these Hessian soldiers were not sent to America against their will. They voted by regiments to go to the defence of their English cousins. All of the officers were given a month's pay as a bonus, and this, no doubt, helped their zeal. The soldiers were to go simply until the war was over, which, it was represented, would be in one year or possibly less. The money came so easily that the Landgrave of Hesse in 1794 supplied the English with a third detachment of 4,000 troops, this time to fight the French. It is not always the case that the terms of sale of human beings in wartime are so well known as are these particular deals. The Hessian officials kept no books, they made no records and wrote no letters boards of investigation were powerless the business was transacted by personal messengers who went to london and closed the deal by word of mouth and later brought back the coin wise men write few letters what would you is farley a rogue and a varlet however things in threadneedle street cannot be done in secret england has a wonderful system of bookkeeping and bureaucraft. there are spies upon spies and cheques and counterchecks, so that filching a large sum from the bank of england has been a trick never so far successfully turned england's share in this transaction was not dishonourable that is to say to buy a man is not so bad as to sell one all she did was to hire strike breakers English statesmen generally regarded the matter as a bit of necessary wartime expediency. If the rebel colonies could be put down by hiring a few extra soldiers, why, hire them, of course. Not so, said Edmund Burke, who gave the matter an unlooked-for publicity by denouncing the Hessians as hired assassins. He prophesied that the Americans would not consider these hirelings as amenable to the rules of civilised warfare, but would welcome them with bloody hands to hospitable graves. A phrase so fine that it was, years after, seized upon by Tom Corwin and applied to the conquest of Mexico. Charles Fox took a like view of the situation, and between him and Burke the word Hessian reached America with a taint upon it which a century of use has not been able to disinfect. The protest in the House of Commons did not directly avail, but there is a suspicion that a wise protest against a great wrong never dies on the empty air. Burke's accusation of barter and sale rumbled throughout Europe and created a sentiment of sympathy for America, especially in France. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine and Silas Dean made capital of it and repeated the words, hired assassins, and thereby helped us to borrow money to fight said assassins, so much for the law of compensation. As for the Landgrave, there was a cool million in bullion in his strong-box. He smiled, shrugged his shoulders, and calmly explained that George Washington, the rebel, had united with the Indian savages and was murdering all loyal English subjects in America, and for a few good Germans to go to the rescue of England, and help put down the insurrection, was a Christian act, and moreover, it was nobody's business but their own. He thought that this disposed of the matter, but the ghost would not down. In 1808 an imperial decree was issued by the Emperor to this effect. Whereas it seems that the House of Hesse Castle has for some years persisted in selling its subjects to the English crown to bear arms in quarrels that are none of ours, and that by this means has amassed a large fortune, therefore this detestable avarice has now brought its own punishment, and the land of Hesse Castle from now on ceases to exist, being incorporated with the kingdom of Westphalia. Troubles, we are told, never come singly. Of this William the Elector was convinced, the emperor had cut off his official head with a stroke of the pen the money he possessed was to be taken by legal attachment its lawful ownership to be determined in the courts the lawsuit would have been a long and tedious one but happily it was not to be napoleon with his conquering army was sweeping europe the corsican was approaching Frankfurt. the rumour was that the city was to be wiped out of existence "'Napoleon hated the Hessians. "'He knew all about their having hired themselves out to fight the Americans. "'Aye, and the French. "'The Hessians must be punished. "'Justice!' "'The late elector of Hesse-Castle was now only a private citizen, "'but his record was his offence. "'Word had been brought to him that Napoleon had said he would hang him "'when he caught him. "'It is not at all likely that this would have happened.' Napoleon must have secretly admired the business stroke that could extract so large a sum from England's exchequer. It was on this same excursion that Napoleon placed a guard in Goethe's house to protect the poet from possible harm. "'If I were not Napoleon, I would be Wolfgang Goethe,' bluntly said the little man, without removing his cocked hat, when he met the King of Letters, thus paraphrasing his prototype, alexander goethe gave him a copy of his last book it lacks one thing your autograph said the man who was busy conquering a world goethe being an author had waited expecting this and so was not disappointed Frankfurt was looted but not burned money jewellery and portable wealth were all the french wanted the castle was used as a stable and the paintings and statuary served as targets for the rollicking soldiers who had exploited the wine cellars. The vast amount of specie which it was reported the Elector possessed was missing. The strong boxes were empty. Soldiers were set to work, digging all about the house for signs of hidden treasure, but none was found. The Elector and his family were distributed, as they said of the type, in limited editions. "'Gone!' no one knew where. The French visited the ghetto, but by order of Napoleon his soldiers were never severe upon the Jews. The Jews had little or nothing to do with politics, and Napoleon, with his usual nonchalance, said, they have suffered enough. Napoleon called himself the protector of the oppressed, and tried occasionally to live up to his self-conferred title. The red shield received a call, and Mayor Rothschild handed over his keys to the officer in person. The house was searched, and cash to the extent of ten thousand thalers appropriated. The officer gave Rothschild a receipt for the amount, and assured the banker it was but a loan. He thanked Rothschild for his courtesy. They drank a bottle of wine together, and the Frenchman, with profuse apologies, excused himself having pressing duties to perform and withdrew first cordially shaking hands the french were convinced that when william the elector fled he had taken with him his money that he should have entrusted it to another and especially a jew seemed preposterous yet such was the case william had fled disguised as a civil engineer carrying with him in his chaise an outfit of surveying instruments. All of his money had been turned over to Mayor Anselm Rothschild. The many biographers place the sum anywhere from one to fifty million dollars. The fact seems to be that it was a little less than two million. Not even a receipt was given for the money, for such a document might have led to locating the gold. The elector would not even count it. He said, if i do not come back it is yours you helped me get it if i return you are an honest man and that is all there is about it the jew was touched to tears the obligation was one fraught with great risk for the money and for himself but there was only one thing to do assume the responsibility that this vast sum of money was given into the hands of rothschild no one has ever denied but as to how he secreted it from the French, has been explained by the very childlike tale that he buried it in the garden back of his house. In the first place, there were no gardens in the ghettos, and in the second place, money buried in a garden yields no return, and cannot to advantage be left there for ever. At this time, England was just becoming a Mecca for Jews for no matter how much the Corsican had to say about his regard for the Jews, they had no regard for him. He stood for war and violence, and his soldiers, as a rule, knew not their master's leniency for the Jew. Banks, vaults, and the shops of jewellers stood small chance in the face of an advancing army, drunk on success. Many Jews, rich and poor, were fleeing to England, Rothschild had special boats under his direction upon which he sold passages to his brethren. Even before the treasure of the elector was placed in his hands, he had inwardly planned for its transportation. England was then the safest country in Europe. England alone was the one country that had not been seriously threatened by revolution, and it was the one country that was reasonably safe from the grasp of the French. Rothschild's faith in England was proven when he sent all of his own spare cash to London. That he would transport there the treasure of William the Elector was the one purpose in his mind. And how to carry it? You may send treasure by armed guards, in which case you invite attack by advertising what you are doing. Or you can divide your money up among poor travellers and by sending your people at different times, thus lessen the risk. Rothschild had been entrusting the safe transportation of money to London in the care of Jews, poor Jews, and now he picked his immigrants and took them into his confidence. He was an honest man. The title of the honest Jew was his by divine right. To serve him was looked upon as a precious privilege, and now almost every mother of a big family bound for England and freedom carried around her ample waist a belt of gold as soon as she and her brood reached london it was to be given to nathan rothschild the son of mayor rothschild who was now established as a banker in london rothschild trusted the poor and lowly and in doing so his faith so far as we know was never misplaced it is not at all likely that the jews knew whose money it was they were carrying nor did they know that several hundred other jews were being trusted in a similar way all they knew was that mayor anselm had come to them and asked them as a great favour as a friend to carry this belt and give it to his dear son nathan in england of course rothschild confidence was not misplaced a few years later this was the rothschild method of transporting treasure all over europe to dispatch say a hundred poor jews at different times and mixed up among them was the treasure Honest men can safely trust others. Honest men, as a rule, are safe even with rogues. There is a spiritual law which governs here. Ask Ben Lindsay. And so the treasure, which had originally come from England, found its way back to Britain. It was deposited among various banks and bankers, to the personal credit of the House of Rothschild, drawing interest at five per cent. In the meantime, Mayor Anselm remained at Frankfurt, living in the Red Shield, occupying the little shop which had been occupied by his father. He smoked his big pipe, smiled, went to prayers, and waited. When the French soldiers had gutted his safe, he sighed, shrugged his shoulders, and said, It is the Lord's will. Those whom he loveth he chasteneth. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He waited. Rothschild brought his children up to economise time and money and to be useful. In childhood, all had served as clerks and helpers in the little bank, the girls included. They were bankers by prenatal tendency and by education. So strong was the banking instinct in the family that three of the girls married men who afterwards became bankers, probably being led into the financial way they should walk "'through marital influences. "'And so they were duly absorbed "'into the great house of Rothschild. "'In order to facilitate the business of the Landgrave, "'who had considerable property in Hanover, "'Rothschild sent his third son Nathan there "'and established a bank. "'This boy Nathan was the financial genius of the family. "'He was the only one of the five boys "'who surpassed their father in initiative. "'And this is saying much.' because the other four were all strong and able men. Anselm, the oldest boy, took his father's work and became head of the Frankfurt House. Solomon managed the branch at Vienna. Nathan founded the branch in Hanover, and turned it over to one of his brothers-in-law, and went to London. Karl did good work in Paris, and James was at Naples and Rome. In addition to these six principal banks, the House of Rothschild had agencies in more than forty different european cities william the elector had turned his money over to rothschild in the year eighteen hundred six he had remained in hiding for four years the french had placed a price upon his head on account of his having sold his troops to the english to fight the french he had not communicated with rothschild for fear of involving him and now behold like lightning put of a clear sky, came a pardon from Napoleon for all alleged offences and a reinstatement of the house of Hesse-Castle to its former proud position. This whole procedure was essentially Napoleonic. The Corsican killed or kissed as the mood took him. Napoleon hated the Emperor Frederick II, who had done the deposing, and as a sort of insult or rebuke to that particular royal party, he sought out the man's enemies and exalted them. William came out of hiding, back to Frankfurt, and was received by the people with open arms. He sought out Lothschild at his office in the Gudengasse of the ghetto. The banker received him with courtesy, but without emotion. "'My money, my treasure, Mayor Anselm. The French stole it from you, I know,' said William. "'Spare me the details. I only come to you now for a loan.' You will not refuse me. We were boys together. Mayor Anselm, boys together. I loved you. Fate has smitten me sore, but now I have my name back and my broken estate. I must begin all over. The loan? You will not refuse me? The banker coughed gently, smiled, and answered, I regret. I have no money to loan now, but the funds you deposited with me are safe. "'The best I can do is to give you exchange on London "'with such little ready money as you now require. "'I have been expecting you, so here is the schedule. "'The principal, with interest at 5%, "'makes me your debtor for a little over $2 thalers. "'My son Nathan in London has the money subject to your check. "'William stared. "'Started. "'clutched the bars across the little window for support "'and burst into tears. "'He was taken to the residence part of the house, "'and Letitia served him with tea and things kosher. "'William became calm and then declared, "'The principal, Mayor, I shall never touch. "'I should not know what to do with it anyway. "'Pay me two percent interest on it, "'and it is all I shall ever ask.' "'And it was all done as William desired.' to his credit let it be said that he spent the money wisely and well he did much for the development of the economic and intellectual improvement of the country mayor anselm died in eighteen hundred twelve aged sixty-nine but long before he passed out he had fixed in the minds of his children the wisdom of being loyal to the family interests one banking-house may fail "'but five standing true to each other in different countries never can,' he said. Nathan had gravitated by divine right to the head of the concern. In times of doubt, all the others looked to him. To Nathan Rothschild must be given the credit for a financial stroke that lifted the Rothschilds absolutely out and away from competition. It was in the spring of 1815. Napoleon had been banished to Elba, and now returned like a conquering hero. His magnetic name was rolling opposition before him as the sun dissipates the clouds. Europe was in a tumult of terror. Would Napoleon do again what he had done before, trample the cities beneath his inconsiderate feet, and parcel out the people and the land among his favourites? England was shaken to her centre. This time Britain shall not go unpunished declared the corsican business was paralyzed the banks were not loaning a dollar many had closed and refused to honor the checks of depositors people with money were hoarding it england was trying to raise funds to strengthen her defenses and fit out her soldiery in better fighting shape but the money was not forthcoming government bonds had dropped to 65 and a new loan at 7% had met with only a few straggling applications this was the condition on the first of June, eighteen hundred fifteen. The armies of the Allies were gathering gear for a final struggle. But there were those who declared that if Napoleon should walk out before certain divisions of this army, wearing his uniform of a little corporal, bearing no weapons, and address the soldiers as brothers, they would throw down their guns and cry, Command us! Nathan Rothschild there in London made his plans with him to think was to act there was no time to consult his brothers or his mother as he usually did on affairs of great moment he called his cashier and gave him quick and final orders i am going across to the continent i shall see the downfall of napoleon or his triumph if napoleon goes down i shall send a letter to myself a blank sheet of paper in an envelope when you get this buy english bonds buy quickly but use a dozen different men, so as not to stampede the market. We have a million pounds in British gold. Use it all, and buy, if necessary, up to five points of power. He rode away on horseback. He left a man with a strong and fast horse every forty miles from London to Dover, then from Calais to Brussels. A swift-sailing yacht waited at Calais, with a reward of one hundred guineas for the captain. "'if he crossed the channel inside of four hours "'after getting a special letter "'addressed to Nathan Rothschild. "'There was a rich reward also for each rider "'if he rode his forty miles in less than four hours. "'Rothschild watched away the night of the 17th of June, "'circling uneasily the outposts of Brussels. "'He saw the Battle of Waterloo, "'or such of that mad confusion as was visible. "'He saw the French ride headlong into that open ditch.' and he saw the last stand of the old guard. Whether Napoleon was beaten or not, no one could say. "'He'll be back tomorrow with reinforcements,' many said. Nathan Rothschild thought otherwise. At nightfall he drew the girth of his saddle two holes tighter, threw away his pistols, coat and hat, and rode away on a gentle patter. After two miles this was increased to a stiff gallop. He knew his horse— he was turning off each mile in just five minutes he rode sixty miles in five hours using up three horses the messenger to whom he tossed his saddlebags asked no questions but leaping astride his horse dived into the darkness and was gone rothschild's men were twenty-four hours ahead of the regular post when the news reached london that wellington had won the banking house of rothschild had no cash but its safe was stuffed with english securities nathan rothschild made his way leisurely back to london on arriving there he found himself richer by more than five hundred thousand pounds than he was when he rode away in eighteen hundred twenty-two the emperor of austria conferred the title of baron on the sons of mayor anselm rothschild it was the first and only time in history where five brothers were so honoured at one time. Certain sarcastic persons have pointed out the fact that this wholesale decoration was done immediately after the Rothschilds had floated a rather large and risky loan for his kingship. This is irrelevant, inconsequential, and outside the issue. That the house of Rothschild with its branches had an open sesame upon the purse strings of Europe for half a century is a fact. "'Nations in need of cash had to apply to the Rothschilds. "'The Rothschilds didn't loan them the money. "'They merely looked after the details of the loan "'and guaranteed the lender that the interest would not be defaulted. "'Their agencies everywhere were in touch with investors. "'The nobility are a timid sort. "'They like to invest their hard-earned savings outside of their ballywick. "'Nobody knows what will happen.' The Rothschild would not float alone until they were assured that the premises were not mortgaged. More than this, there was a superstition all round that they were backed up by J. Bull, and J. Bull is a close collector. The Rothschilds made government loans popular. Before this, kings got their cash mostly by coercion. For their services, the Rothschild asked only the most modest fee, a fee so small it was absurd, a sixteenth of one per cent or something like that it is safe to say that only one government in the world at some time or other from eighteen hundred fifteen to eighteen hundred seventy never courted the rothschild with intentions america never quite forgot nor forgave that hessian incident and the rothschild were never asked for favours by your uncle samuel there were four generations of rothschilds among whom there have been very able men this beats the rule by three generations and the record by one the frankfurt house of rothschild was dissolved in 1901 the london firm still continues but i am advised that the rothschild while interesting in a historic way are no longer looked upon as a world power the Tizia, the mother of ten is worthy of more space than i am able here to give her There are those who say she was the real founder of the House of Rothschild. She died aged exactly one hundred, in the Red Shield, where she was married, and where all her children were born. She outlived the fall of Napoleon just forty years. She had a fine and pardonable pride in her kingly sons. Politics and world problems interested her. She was sane and sensible, and happy to the last. End of section 8.